from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with Cars That Matter, and ordinarily we'd be broadcasting from Kirko's Malibu Studios, but we have a very special opportunity to be in a great place this morning in San Helena at beautiful Meadowood, Napa Valley. I'm here with two friends whom I've known for a long, long time, H. William Harlan, known to his friends as Bill Harlan, and Bruce Meyer, whom I see a little more often down in Los Angeles. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks so much, Robert. Just a quick background. Bill Harlan, of course, is known in the wine world for his Harlan Estate, Promontory, and Bond. And among a smaller members only, wine growing estate called the Napa Valley Reserve, where we're sitting right now. Bruce, of course, is a Los Angeles celebrity in the car world and elsewhere. Certainly was a founding board member of the Peterson Automotive Museum, founder of the Checkered Flag 200, Bonneville record holder, and all-around car guy. And what kind of brings you guys together up here is an annual event that you both co-host called the Legends of Motorsport at the Napa Valley Reserve. And what a lot of fun that's been to watch some of these great cars. And great legends. And we started with Phil Hill. That's right. It doesn't seem possible, but it's probably been 16, 17 years ago. This year is the 15th year. And so every year you bring up another legend of motorsport. This year it was Don the Snake, if I'm not mistaken, Don the Snake Perdome. Right. We kind of ventured into drag racing, but we've done just about every discipline with Phil Hill and Bobby Rahal, Parnelli, Dan Gurney. It's a real who's it, who. Yeah. I mean, we've had Indy. We've had, we had... Uh, um, uh, Jeff Gordon. Jeff, Jeff Gordon. Gordon. Oh, sure. my God. Jeff Gordon. So Big you have to understand cars, that yeah. both Bill and I are just like knocking on the door of 80. So things don't just, like our best friends, I know I'm sitting next to Bill, but yeah. every now and then I look, I know him. But. Well, you know what? It's because you both have too many cars and you can't keep yeah, track right. of them. Too many cars? Too many Too cars. many memories. There we go. Well, you know, that's actually that's what this it. conversation's about because here on Cars That Matter, we talk about, well, just that, cars that are really, really important. But the thing that kind of cements the important cars in your lives, I think, and maybe everyone who cherishes a car probably cherishes a friendship more. Friendships that came about because of cars and driving experiences that have happened over the years. How long have you guys known one another? About 60 years almost. Yeah, just about 60 years. Wow. Where did that start? It started at the fraternity house. Is that right? The Beta Theta Pi house <laughs> at Berkeley. Oh, boy. I bet there are some stories that go back to that. Uh, just Luckily, wind me up. Yeah. Luckily, <laughs> Luckily, we don't remember those. Yeah, I do remember them. Okay. Bill's okay. trying to forget, but I remember them well because Bill was a water polo star. He coached the water polo team. You know, the guy was like a Greek god. And, yeah, yeah. And he, he rode around is. in his matchless. and, and uh, Matchless? Okay, Bill wow. Bill is an amazing driver and motorcycle racer. I think the Harlan family in general has been a racing family because Frank Harlan also is a Bonneville record holder. And Bill and Frank are fearless and they're talented and they really touch all the disciplines because Frank has even raced stock cars. Bill, when we all started messing with bikes up at Berkeley, you know, we all started out as a novice. And if you live long enough, you move on to... uh, Expert. Expert, that's right. I never even came close to expert. But Bill was an expert. I'm just stealing the mic right now because I know Bill won't talk about it, but I will. He's a modest guy. He is a super modest guy. Bruce is a great storyteller. I mean, you can. if my life was as good as how Bruce makes it out to be, things would have been fantastic. <laughs> it's way better. Bruce was having a fantastic time all along the way. Not only was he a great storyteller, he was a great instigator of fun, really a pollinator of people. Mm-hmm. And some way he just attracted everyone. Someone that no matter what happened, when Bruce is around, things were better. It's probably the same way today, but uh, no, he that, hasn't slowed down. Then. No, I know he hasn't. I know he hasn't. What's your uh, motto? Never lift. Never Bruce? lift. Well, that says a lot about how you drive and how you live your lives. Gearheads would know never lift, but even some of my gearheads, when I sign my letters, never lift. They think I hurt my back or something. <laughs> but what it means your is knees, don't yeah. take your foot off the gas. Just keep it firmly planted on the gas. That's right. Never Whether lift. it's a 911 or something a little more manageable, you just don't know how to get through life's curves. We ended up taking a detour on a conversation and talked all about Bill's motorcycle racing days and how Bruce would organize friends to attend the rally. And it's amazing that we weren't even talking about cars yet. But really, that's because it's all about friendships and machines, regardless of how many wheels they have. Well, at the end of the day, 
It's all about friendships. Mm-hmm. If somebody said you could have any car on earth and you say, well, I'd love to have a GTO, you know, what is it, 60, 70, 80 million dollars, and you had a GTO and you're the last man on earth, what fun is that? That's right. So the fun is sharing it with people, doing things with friends, like-minded friends, and being together and enjoying it together. And that's a lot of the reason I'm here at the Napa Valley Reserve, which is a premier wine country club that Bill just dreamt up out of the blue. That's right. He said he was putting together this country club, so to speak, based around wine. They were going to do the crush and the pruning, and they they might even get into beekeeping and just Mm -hmm. something. All the great disciplines that revolve around the Napa Valley. I can smell the grapes fermenting right now. Oh, it's fabulous. uh, It's fabulous. And and Bill just, where we are right now is the home site where Bill lived. And Bill always lived in very modest homes, and he brought up his kids very modestly well, but he started talking to me about this concept. And I'm going, hello, Bill. You know, you're talking to Bruce, you know, <laughs> you're Jamoke down in LA that, you know, I know red wine from white wine. That's, that's where it ends, you know. So he said, no. And this is the way he sold me on. He said, Bruce, he said, I'm not calling you because you're such a great wine expert, but wine is more about people getting together, enjoying a good time, being in a nice place and enjoying friendships. Well, Just like that, these cars. And so that resonated with me because, I mean, I can do that as well as anybody. You know? <laughs> Better. <laughs> that's right. So that's how I got kind of involved in this thing. And and he started telling me about the activities. And that's when I said, Bill, what about, like, I'm thinking motorcycles and cars. And he said, great idea. You'll be the director of motorsport. There we go. And that's how it started. There we go. <laughs> that's how it all began. And he puts it together every year. He's the one who finds the legends. And he finds a lot of the enthusiasts in the club. We have a lot of members. Wine is really a common thread among all of us if we eat and drink, no matter what our interests are, no matter what our business in life is, no matter what our hobbies are, politics, any of those things. Wine is a common thread. One of the things that was important to us when we were kids and still is, uh, is motorsports. Especially you grew up here in California, That's especially right. in the car capital of the world. 40s and 50s oh, and yeah. 60s. And there's a wonderful place to drive cars, to, to get out in the country, etc. Bruce has rounded up a handful of members for us, maybe even more than that. It wasn't the exact reason for it in the beginning, but all of a sudden, people that were into motorsports decided wine isn't so bad. So. You know, it all kind of goes together. Yeah. You, you go out for a great drive and you come back and you have a wonderful dinner and wine to make it very, very special. You know, it's funny, I was taking a little hike yesterday around the Meadowwood property. Got a beautiful hiking trail here. And as I was going up on the hill, I realized that you and your friends were all taking off for a day's rally. And I basically just froze and watched a parade of incredible cars leave the property and tried to imagine what each and every one of them was. I know you were uh, taking the lead bill in a beautiful Bentley. Yes. Bruce put me in the front because I'm from the area. I probably wouldn't get as lost as fast as okay. everybody else. Okay. <laughs> no, nobody passes Bill. Yeah, there we go. Boy, that's quite a car. I mean, just the quintessential green flying bee, huh? Well, my theory is about cars. If you could get out of your car and walk away without turning around and looking at it, you've got the wrong car. Boy. And so over these years, there was one that was missing, and I talked with Bruce about it here and there. And, and we were at an auction about five or six years ago, and one came up, and didn't, I couldn't quite get to be willing to pay for it, what they wanted for it. Then I was with Bruce at an auction a few years ago. You know, another friend of Bruce's, fell by him, Bruce Canapa. I'm sitting between those two guys before well, the auction that's a, was that's over. That's a dangerous pair to be sandwiched between <laughs> because they uh, both have about as much experience. And it's like the cartoons where there's a little devil on each shoulder, you know, telling you what to do. <laughs> you you captured like that, that perfectly huh? right, yeah, Robert. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I ended up with this car. Fantastic. But now that I have it, I liked it even better than I thought I would. And so it was a, a great day yesterday. Isn't that great? That's fantastic. I know you've got an old Bentley, too. A 4.5, is uh, that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. That's a yep. special car. But uh, you were not driving that yesterday. I was driving a little Alpha. It's a neat little car. It's fantastic. Yeah. There's nothing better than the rear end of that Alpha. That yeah. little coat, that, the little cam tail. With That's right. Beautiful, beautiful flat black and the tail lights. And what a great car. I saw it. I didn't realize well, that was that's your a, car. That is, that is a, an enthusiast car, but it's it's really a connoisseur's car. Yes, it's, it is. It's not high horsepower. It's, nope. it's like 1,300 pounds, yep. 1,600 cc's. Yep. 
but they called them baby GTOs. And it's an acquired taste driving it. The visuals, you have to know what you're looking at. Oh, man, I knew what I was looking and, at. It looked fantastic. And you would understand that, Of course, Robert. it's like being inside a coffee can filled with rocks. There's nothing makes more racket because it's really just a literally a little body shell on, that's a, right. on a frame, and that's about it. Well, thank you for recognizing What a great it. car. Because I had it up here. I think, well, this would be kind of a cool thing. I don't think anybody here had any clue what I'm that sure car was. I, mean, I did. Yeah, Bill, of course. Well, Bill's a connoisseur, and he likes odd machines. I'm convinced that when we're young, when we're in our teens, you imprint early and what you see when you're 12 or 13 years old kind of sticks with you for life. And uh, that's what makes cars such incredible points of reference as we go through life. We look back and we say, man, when I was 15 years old, I was in love and her name was this and the car was named this. And all of those things continue to resonate for decades and decades and decades. And I think we grew up in exactly the right. Oh, I man, you uh, guys were, you, you oh were in God. the golden age. We grew up in the 40s, so we had hot rods, yeah. which were just dream machines. Boy, there were a couple I saw yesterday, some 32 Fords yeah. that were just drop-dead yeah. gorgeous. 100%. And so we, so we enjoyed hot rodding. We enjoyed the birth of drag racing, which was last night with the snake. We kind of got into motorcycles when they were safer. That's you know, right, because there weren't as many slower, crazy people on the road. And there weren't so and... many people texting and driving. That's right. So when you just look at the time that we grew up. And with, place. And place. Uh, that's right. Yeah. We had 12 months. Of beautiful driving. Of weather. beautiful driving. That's, that's really a good point, Bill. Yeah. And of course, they were always expensive, always out of reach a little bit. But the good news is that back in the 60s, kind of in the early 70s, these were just old used cars. And that made it great, too. They weren't these precious, you know, 10, 20, 30 million dollar artifacts. You could actually buy a 275 GT Beef and drive it. When we started focusing on exotic sports cars like sure. a Gullwing, a Gullwing was four or five thousand dollars. I know it. I know Today, it. the radio upgrade is four or five grand. So, I mean, you know, you could buy a 40 Ford for $50. If you had a paper corner, you could afford the kind of stuff that we had. I would say I, between the time I was 16 and the time I was 18, I had five cars that I paid less than $100 for. Isn't that amazing? And then stepped up to 150 bucks for a car. <laughs> but we could work on them. We could custom We could do anything we wanted to. We could paint them. We could change the engine. We could do anything. If I had to kind of ask both of you, your first real car, what was the first real car you bought? So I bought a Porsche in 1960 from John Von Neumann in Hollywood. Von, yeah, it was right. a 61 Porsche. I took delivery in May of 61. And that really started me with a Porsche. I've driven Porsches since 1961. Well, that's a. I don't that's think Bill has ever even had start. a Porsche. <laughs> but as far as for me, the first car was uh, a 37 Hudson. That was actually a okay. pretty neat car, but it was it was pretty fast, straight six. With yes, uh, it was a. Uh, I, I, I that was an eight cylinder car. Oh, an eight. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it was a four-door, running boards, uh, it had curtains that came down in the back. It was a, kind of a neat thing. Was, I paid $35 for that car. I love it. And uh, but then the, the next car that was kind of a cool car was a 41 Ford convertible. And that was the $150 car. After the 41 Ford, I got a, a 51 Oldsmobile. And it was a convertible also. You know, as soon as you get your car at that time, you head across the border to Tijuana and get tuck and roll upholstery right, for your car. That's right, tuck and roll, yeah. And I had that thing lowered pretty much to the ground. I painted it purple. It was the first car that we you see in those You were days. an early <laughs> adopter of what became a complete East L.A. phenomenon later Well, yeah, and he was in Whittier. You were a tastemaker. Well, I'm not sure it was taste, but we were having some fun. <laughs> did you have the name, like a song title? We, on we the did have names for our cars. but uh, <laughs> Painted <not>. on <laughs> Dreamboat. Or that yeah. car was the Purple Passion, I have to admit. Um, <laughs> you know, this is you, good. You can't, you can't pay I'm for sure it. I'm not sure we ever admit that one. You, you, can't, you, can't, you can't make this stuff up. But the Friendship goes even deeper with a fascinating story about one particular car that was one of the first quote-unquote foreign cars purchased between them. When I was at Berkeley, I was a bartender at a place called the Rathskeller. Really? And it was the place to be. Larry Blake, who owned the place, loved any Cal athletes, and he encouraged us to buy beers for the Cal athletes. Of course, Bill was a Cal athlete, so I rightfully took care of Bill. I don't think he ever bought a beer there. But um, <laughs> wasn't so bad. Yeah, <laughs> sounds, sounds like the place to but be. But after Helps after graduating, I went up to to um, 
Lake Tahoe to, to be kind of a bartender waiter at this place called the Forest Inn. And at Lake Tahoe, there was still is a place called the Sierra Tahoe Boat Company. They specialize in classic wooden boats. Oh, boy. And I had my little Porsche up there, and I would go over there and just drool over Drool worthy, aren't they? Oh, my God. And it was a fellow named Dick Clark who ran it, and the guy that owned it at the time was a fellow named Moreland Vicell. And Moreland had a gullwing and evidently had some engine problems with it. And took the Gullwing engine out and put in a 327 Chevy engine. Which was common practice back then. And I remember walking through the boathouse and I saw this Gullwing, Rudge wheels, factory oh, yeah. Rudge wheels. Oh. I'd always, I mean, a, a Gullwing was like the first supercar. It I mean, was, come was. on. I it, mean, it was still a supercar. It's really totally. the first, kind of a lot of ways, the first modern car that you can still drive today. A hundred percent. So I look and I see this car and sitting there and at the time it had a reverse trigger on it, you know, like, mm-hmm. And I mean, I knew what that was. I knew it had an American engine in it. So I went right away to the office and talked to Dick Clark. Does that going have a Chevy engine in it? He goes, yeah. And I go, oh my God, the perfect combination. Yep. You know, yep. no foreign exotic, I, exotic car with a motor that won't break. That's right. Go so down I to thought, the Pep Boys and buy a set of plugs, and, and you're by out the, the way, door people for ten bucks. Foreign cars, meaning like nobody right. can work on them. And boy, nobody could work on one of those. Fuel injection goes out on one of those things. Yeah. And you had to be a master watchmaker to fix it. I sold my Porsche at Lake Tahoe. I took every penny I made for the whole summer, and I bought this car. And I drove it home. I had it for about a year. And I would take my friends for rides in this thing, and they would just scream for me to stop, you know. It was really fast. And I drove it up to Berkeley for a football game or something from down in L.A. And the guy that owned the Triumph shop. Tony Metz. Tony Metz. my sponsor. Wow. Oh, he sponsored you in racing. He's my sponsor for racing the bikes. So Tony bought the car from me and sold it to Bill. On the rally yesterday, did you see a black going? I sure did. That's the car. The black one with the Rudge wheels. The black one with the Rudge wheels, that has a Chevy engine in it, and he's had that car, what, 55 years probably? 54 years. That's amazing. People so don't... Bill, the other thing about Bill, he doesn't sell stuff. I love it. He's very particular on what he buys, and then he just doesn't sell it. It looked totally stock except for the shifting lever, but it didn't have the fitted luggage that the Gullwings had. So mm-hmm. I wanted to get fitted luggage for it. I opened the paper in the morning to see if any Gullwing could be for sale. One day, one came up. So I went out with my brother, got there first in the morning, looked at the car, tried to talk him out of the fitted luggage. And then this car was perfect. It had 1,600 miles on it, like a brand new car. The guy wouldn't sell me the fitted luggage without the car. Well, I didn't have enough money to buy the car. My brother was with me, and he was very, very conservative. And so I, he was already married and had a couple of kids. I was still single, but he saved everything. So I talked him into lending me the money to buy that car. So now I have two of them, and they're painted the exact same color. You couldn't tell them apart. I had to sell one of them because I couldn't afford both. I had to pay my brother back. So I sold it. I think I sold I paid, actually. Around, I'm going to start crying. Around $3,500, I think I paid for that <laughs> yeah. car. Uh, well, it, it, was, and I, I sold, it was a lot of money then. <laughs> right. I sold it a year later, like for four grand or something. I like, made a little bit of money, but I kept the luggage. Fantastic. <laughs> and so, what you wanted in the first place. I still have it. And even though you know, the original car would be worth more money, this car is like a friend. That's right. I mean, I think about the old days. We talked about our parents that maybe had a horse and buggy before their car. You think of your car almost as well as they probably thought about their horse. That's incredible. What a way to connect all the dots. And to be able to have held on to something that long really does say something about the commitment and passion. Talk about a car that matters. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurtco Media. Well, we're back with Cars That Matter and Bill Harlan and Bruce Meyer, old friends with a lot of old cars in common. In fact, we hear some out there going up the road. We are at Meadowood Napa Valley, so we're not in the quiet of a studio. In fact, we've got some frogs and woodpeckers and all kinds of things going on around us, and it just reminds us what a beautiful place we're in. And am I mistaken? Was there a was there a 275 GTB story that you guys could share? It's a great story. Let me tell a story before that, though. <laughs> the second car that I ever saw was a, a 275 GTB. I saw that car, and about three years later, 
I was able to buy one. So I kept it for a few years, and it was 1965, I guess. And it had first uh, year. Yeah. the drive shaft was always getting out of balance. Right. And I couldn't afford to keep it going, to own the car, and also keep it but drive shaft and balance and everything else. So I ended up selling it. Really what I wanted was a yellow one. So I sold it at about 1971, I'd say, 70 or 71. So that's the story on me, selling the red one to get a yellow one. But I never could quite afford all the other things I, I wanted to keep my life going until one day I called Bruce. So so this is, I mean, this is like a divine story, okay? The big boy upstairs, divine. I got a call from a Beverly Hills policeman. And I think I know every garage in Beverly Hills. And he said, Bruce, there's a lady, her husband died 11 years ago. She has a Ferrari in the garage. And she wants to sell it. I said, you know, I'm not a dealer. I'm not sure I'm the right guy. And I'm thinking, it's a car that I probably know nothing about. So he just said, please, just go and talk to her and make nice and so on. Okay. I get to the house. This lady was so sweet. Her husband was an Austrian Olympian skier. She had like a funky motorhome. She moved out of the way of the garage. She opens up the garage. And the garage is full of litter and boxes. And there's this car covered and she rolls back the cover. You could have knocked me over with a feather. Here is a alloy-bodied 275 GTB torque tube, six carburetor, outside gas cap. Alloy. All original, original paint, everything. And I'm going, oh my God. It was like the most beautiful thing I did. I mean, tell me, how did you, what is the story in this car? She said, my husband bought this car from Chris Cord. He and his wife, Katrina, went on their honeymoon in this car in 1966. They bought it brand new, picked it up at the factory, drove it, brought it back to the U.S. and sold it to my husband in 1966. Wow. I'm going, oh my gosh. My husband died like 11 years ago. It's been sitting here and I think it's just time that it needs to go. And can you help me sell it? I don't have any idea what the value of this car is because I really didn't. Alloy body, outside gas cap. Yeah, I think they right. made two or three of them it that year. Like nothing. Sure. Yeah. I put her in my car. I drove her to my house, which was like a walk away, and I showed her Bill Doheny's car, which was a twin to this car. Yeah. Fast forward like six months or so, and she said, Bruce, I've decided to sell the car. I've decided on the price, but you know, I just don't like the guy. I said, you know, why don't you just think it over? Let me think about it. I get a call from Bill, and he said, You know, I'm turning, I don't know, what was it, 60? 60. I'm turning 60 on Saturday. It was over 19 years ago. And I want to buy myself a car. And Bill and I have always talked about cars. And, you know, he says, What do you think of this? And, you know, so we've, we've always had conversations sure. about cars. Or if something comes up that I think Bill ought to have, yeah. you know, I, I have no problem. Once again, the devil on the shoulder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyways, he said, I'd like to get a 275. I love a yellow one. And now I'm thinking, he's messing with me. There's no way that the same day, there's no, there's no way he would say, I want a 275, a yellow 275. That's beyond coincidence. And I start messing with Bill because I'm thinking he knows something. There's no possible way he would just call me out of the blue. And it's not like we talk every day or every week or every month. He just called me and said he went. And after querying him, I realized he had he no know. idea. He didn't know. I said, okay, here's the deal. You FedEx me tomorrow. Information on Meadowood about yourself. FedEx me anything you can about what your lifestyle. And I'm going to make your day. I said, just trust me. And I said, I want you to come down here on Friday. I called Michelle. I said, Michelle, I'm going to make your day. You're going to receive tomorrow information about a guy that is the absolute right owner for your car. I'm pretty good about talking about Bill. Because <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm a huge fan, as You're you can tell. You're a master of ceremonies. You yeah. know how to introduce people. So she said, oh, I'm so excited, Bruce. And we have a friend of ours, Chip Connor, who sure. had a garage in, in L.A. And I said to Chip, can I borrow your mechanic to come over? I want to bring some Marvel mystery oil and some plug wrenches and stuff. See if she starts and I had after Ed, Ed Brown, years. the tow guy. You know, Ed oh, Brown. Sure, I said, Ed, Ed, everybody's best friend so got ev- him on speed dial. That's right. We <laughs> all do. So Bill flies down. He has no idea. He's just got a check with him. I have Ed Brown there and Marty, who was Chip's mechanic. Yeah. 
And we all converge at Michelle's. To make a long story short, Bill buys the car. And of course, Bill still has it today. And he takes it right to, at that time, Phil Riley and company, Mm -hmm. and has them go through it, make sure everything's perfect. And so the two of us have our twin 275s, long nose, six carburetors. His is way rarer than mine. And it's just like one of those magical stories, you know, that just was meant to be. Well, if she has any other garages with any other dusty (laughs) old cars (laughs) in them, give me a call. Let me see what I can do. What a great story, Isn't that fabulous? And so the car has a great owner. It's basically... Two guys that don't sell their cars. I love it. Even today, here we are almost 20 years later, she comes up about every four or five years to see her car. She still loves that car, checks in on the phone every so often, and so it's just a, a wonderful experience i mean this whole thing with bruce with michelle with the car i mean just it's a fate what a fantastic thing so a fellow named peter Sachs, about 10 years ago probably called and said bruce what do you think about doing an event up you know in the napa valley i said oh my gosh this is perfect and i know right who to call so i called bill the whole thing happens right here at Meta, where they had 23 GTOs. Out of, what, 37 were made and or you something know, like that? Yeah, 30s? and you know, these guys, they don't like publicity. They don't want to contaminate their events with anything other than GTOs. That's right. The only way that I would get involved organizing this thing with my pal Bill is that both of us were included in the rally and the, right. whole, and the whole event. <laughs> let, a let a 275 or two in there. Yeah, yeah. so our two yellow 275s <laughs> hung with the GTOs That's and great. we had a great rally right at Bill's Resort at Meadowood. Uh-huh. And I don't think they've ever had so many together at one time. And maybe the most beautiful place on earth is the winery Bond. That's right. And we have pictures of the gathering at Bond. And Bond, by the way, is another one of Bill's enterprises. You've been to Bond, correct? Yes, I have. Can you imagine, you know, you sit in that reception area and you see the parking out in front. And and you're looking down on two and a half billion dollars worth of Ferraris. And by the way, that's only 20 cars. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Not to crunch the numbers too quickly, but I can't resist. Yeah. Let's get a little friendly debate going between you guys. I know you're friends, but I'm sure there are some friendly disagreements too. Let me ask. You got your desert island, you've got a nice road on it, and you can only have one of your favorite cars. What are you going to drive? I would take the Allard. The Allard is a car that it's like an old friend again. I've had that car since 1969, I think. Amazing. Now, now just just for our our audience who probably doesn't know from Allard, uh, obviously it's a British car with a big American motor. How would you define that as a significant car, both historically and today? It's almost like a hot rod. It's a British body and frame, etc., with a Cadillac engine. And that was well in advance of Carroll Shelby's 260 and 289 yes. Cobras. So they forged the way for, yeah, uh, for big, big American motors. It's kind of transitional hybrid car put together in two basic countries. The car itself. Back when hybrid meant something else. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I would say that the design of the car is probably from the 30s. But uh, with a big engine in it, it could, it could compete. But it was a pretty wild car. Yeah. Uh, what a great-looking car, too. That's just fantastic with those fenders, those outboard fenders, kind of just hugging the, yeah. hugging the tires. Yeah, and, it's a uh, car when you see it. If you got any interest in something that might be exciting, that was it. I'm not surprised at what Bill came up with. Sidney Allard, you know, was the Carroll Shelby of the 50s. He just didn't make the mark that Shelby did, and his cars are much more of a refined and esoteric acquired taste. But whatever the engine is in that car is what it came with. I can yeah. tell you, when you see, well, if you could see this car... And it that's is, unheard it, of, by the way, because right. those things used to, they'd blow engines oh, and Oh, I know, them, and right? people would take the Cadillac, and they'd pump it up, and they'd make it look like the old Cadillac. The engines is in Bill's car is the original engine and a three-speed transmission because the first thing guys did when they started racing at Laguna Seca, you know, throw a four-speed in it or mess with it. Bill never messed with it. And I can remember so clearly when Bill ran his Allard, we're talking the first year of the Historics, Bill called me and said, there's an event up at Laguna Seca. Why don't you come up? And we stayed at the Green Lantern in Carmel. Mm -hmm. And Bill drove his Allard down from San Francisco and he raced it, kicked butt, and 
packed his stuff and went and home. And drove it home. And drove it home. But what made Bill so at ease in that hour is that Bill really loved sideways. You know, the brakes go out after the first <laughs> lap in an hour. So the way you stop it, I mean, is yeah. pitch it. Yeah. And I just happened to be standing next to Steve Earle, who was the organizer. Right. And this guy came up and was like, apoplectic that Bill Harlan was going to kill somebody because he was so sideways and so out of control. And what that guy didn't realize that he was so in control. That's right. Anyways, I can remember the way he drove that I out. To, I told you Bruce is a good storyteller. No, it's, if my, if I, my life was as good as his stories. Well, yeah, I, I have good. a feeling it's probably pretty close. Bruce, you know, Carol Shelby's obviously one of those larger than life characters and you've had a long friendship with him during all those many years when he was kind of the luminary of the racing scene. When did you first meet him? I met Carol Shelby in the mid 80s and a friend of mine knew him and put us together and I wanted to get the glove box signed on my Cobra. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, yeah, I hear you there. You know what I mean? Yeah, and so yeah. like everybody. So he was nice enough to come by my garage and then Shortly thereafter, he was waiting for a heart, and he would come by when he was in the area driving by. So we spent a lot of time together. He was a very close friend of Robert E. Peterson. And I hosted them for lunch at my country club more than once, quite a few times. And they would sit there, and they'd have their see-throughs. See-through? <laughs> See-through is a drink. Like ah, do tell. I haven't had one gin. of those. I remember that one time we sat there, we met at noon, and it was like 2 o'clock, and the lunch service was starting to close, and they were like on their third see-through. Oh, man, that had to be fun. And the stories, both of those guys lived lives that you just Bigger, can't. Larger than life. Larger than life. And I had nothing to add to the conversation, <laughs> but I would just sit there going, no well, you just kidding. these guys. They were both great. I mean, I know with Carol, you'd set up the mic and basically just kick back, and, and it would be a story like you've never heard before. Absolutely. And he might be making it up on the fly. <laughs> but his stories were so great, and he yeah. remembered everything. Yeah. And I would just sit there in awe. I mean, my jaw and my, you know. Yeah, I know it. I know it. And he and Robert E. Peterson would chat, and then he had another good friend, Johnny Myers. Mm-hmm. And Johnny Myers was Jack Northrup's best friend, the test pilot for the Flying Wing. And I grew up with Johnny Myers' son, Lou. Oh. So I kind of hung around the Myers. We all used to have boats up at the lake and right, so forth. Right. But, so I spent a lot of time with Carol. The stories were amazing. He was an amazing guy. I mean, from the most amazing salesman to yeah. uh, Boy, he some could, people said scoundrel. He, some could, people, he could sell the proverbial ice to the Eskimos, but man, like, it was good ice when he made it. It was good. You know, I mean, he, he really brought it home. And a friend of mine growing up in L.A., the largest Ford dealer wasn't Galpin at that time. It was right. Coberly Ford. That's right. And Bill Coberly and I went to high school together. So we were absolute best friends in high school. And I remember in the mid-60s when Bill was saying, because he would go back to these big dealer conventions, Carol Shelby just held up Ford for an <laughs> enormous amount of money on this Lamar project. Carol knew how course, to charge. He wasn't shy. Of course, to hear Carol tell the but, story, he didn't get paid a dime. He was, I that's got right. paid a pittance. I got paid a pittance. That's you know, right. tell you those stories. Oh, my gosh. So you think about it, the time that I grew up in was the best time in the automotive history yes, ever world. Yes, it was. You know, from hot rods on. And Carol Shelby was a hot rodder. I've got a picture of Dan Gurney's chop five window in my garage. The whole Shelby effort were hot rodders. And that's what built this country. And I have spent a lot of my time, as you know, Robert, trying to draw attention and give genuine hot rodders their due. Because they were the they, unsung heroes, and without them, none of these cars, none of the enthusiasm, none of the styling, none of that stuff would exist today. And you know, early on in the 40s, they were like hell's angels. You just used the word hot rod, you get your mouth washed that, out with soap, right, you know? I mean, right. these are the guys that built it all. Yeah. Carroll Shelby was the real deal. He could drive. He knew how to hire a team. That's right. Motivate. He was, he, an, he was an inspirational character. When you look at his team members, from Phil Hill to Dan Gurney to Dave McDonald, the team, the technicians, the Ken Miles, yeah. Phil Remingtons, yeah. tell me in the world ever has anybody put together a team like that? Never. That's right. And that was all Carroll Shelby for all of his flaws, for all the kind of stuff he tried to sneak through. <laughs> you got to just give him a standing O. Because you absolutely do. People ask me, what is my favorite car? 
The Cobra may not be the most famous car I've ever owned, but it's my favorite car. I mean, you get in that car, you fire it up, and it just comes to life, just like the Allard. It's visceral, it handles, it's challenging. And they're never going to make them like that again. We'll be right back. Sometimes the exceptional is not the biggest budget. Sometimes the exceptional is someone's ability to actually take their soul and print it on the screen for a moment. I want to learn everything that there is to know about the filmmaking process. I think part of art is hearing from the artists who create it. The number of different visions, the number of different qualifications that have to go into making any film is insurmountable. And hearing those stories can be just as exciting and insightful as the movies themselves. Certain movies or certain scores, certain actors, have shaped who I am as a person. I have such appreciation for the things that people produce and the work that goes into it. Whether it's the writer who came up with the story in general or how the filmmakers were able to take that from the page and put it onto screen and then from the actors themselves who were able to kind of bring that all to life. All of it is what I want to hear because it makes me love my favorite movies even more. I'm Scott Talal. If you love movies like I do, you're going to love Hollywood Unscripted. Wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Unfortunately, Bruce had to take off shortly after that, but another friend of ours stopped by, Brett Anderson, Director of Culture and Communications. The Napa Valley Reserve is integral to the car collector scene, so I couldn't resist talking to the men behind the property in the vineyard. We poured another glass of wine. It would be an opportunity missed if we didn't talk about the fellow who's responsible for shaping the Napa Valley and its wines and its wine culture. Nobody's done what Bill Harlan has achieved, and I think it's probably an opportune time to reflect on not just the wines that you've created, the Napa Valley Reserve, but the culture that you're responsible for. Bill, there's a lot of history there. Brett, I know you've come up here recently to work with Bill, and you've probably got a lot of stories to tell. Certainly many stories over the years. I've known Bill for quite a while, and a year and a half ago, he convinced me to join his team helping on the communication side of things. But I've always been a great admirer of the wines, and Bill inspired me in that regard, and I'm happy now to have the opportunity to contribute in a very small way to the culture that he's built. But it's interesting, Bill, we're at the Napa Valley Reserve right now, and in many ways, your experience in Napa Valley, I know, began when you were very young and visited here, but this property is part of a larger property that kind of became the beginning of your getting serious about Napa Valley. I came up here in the late 50s, moved from Southern California to Northern California to go to school. I hadn't been here for about two or three months when I heard there was a place where you could go wine tasting. I came up here to school. This is a fraternity guys all have a pretty good idea of where the end places are, what to, what's going on. And so they said there's a place where you could go wine tasting and they didn't check your ID and uh, <laughs> uh, the girls like going up there and wine tasting was free and... It's a pretty good program for a college student, so that's when I first came up. And then in 1959, came back and did, in quotes, a documentary on the Napa Valley to get in behind the scenes to see how it worked up here. And at that time, I said, someday if I could ever afford it, I'd like to buy a little piece of land and plant a vineyard, find a wife, raise a family, that kind of thing. That took me another 20 years before I was able to acquire first piece of property, which is pretty much here, Meadowood and this property, Napa Valley Reserve, right next door to each other. We ended up living here, raised our kids here on this property. And then over the years, as we were able to build Meadowood, we entered into this property with an agreement to lease it with the intent to acquire it. And that took 20 years to finally put that together. So here we are now, 40 years later, and Everything's starting to come together. Finally starting to come together. What an incredible story. Well, kind of like your cars. You keep your cars for a long time, and you keep your vision for a long time, too. These are lifetime visions. Yeah, all I need is a few more lifetimes. (laughs) (laughs) Bill, I know you've told me Robert Mondavi was obviously an icon in this business, was part of the inspiration for what you ultimately decided to do. Yes, what happened was I had gone to the opening of the Robert Mondavi Winery in 1966, And I didn't get the nod for the opening night, but I was there the opening week. And it was a huge inspiration. It was the first winery in Napa Valley of any consequence after the repeal of Prohibition. Uh, That gave me an even further incentive to try to start my own. And then when I acquired this property here, I got a call from Robert Mondavi. 
within, I'd say, 30 to 60 days after we acquired the property. And he invited me to lunch. When you get a call from Robert Mondavi, he invites you to lunch. I mean, obviously you want to show up. <laughs> and he asked me why I bought the property. I told him this romantic idea. And I asked him why he invited me to lunch. And he said, well, this property that you acquired, I think, is way more potential than your romantic idea. And I think that this would be a great place for a common ground. And I asked him, what does he mean by that? And he said that it started out as a little club. There were seven little rooms that they would rent out for people that were visiting the Napa Valley frequently. And he said this would be a great place to continue to do that. And I said, well, how does that make sense? And he says, well, let me give you some perspective. He says, what I want to do is do a wine auction, and I think this would be a great place for it. I would like to send you to Europe. A few weeks in Bordeaux and a week in Burgundy. And at the end of the trip, you'll visit the Hospice de Bonne, which is a wine auction been going on for many, many decades, over a century. So I went on that trip and I came back with a whole different perspective. It changed my time perspective from time was really, really important to thinking about time in generations and even into centuries. What did you do when you came back here and what was the decision process that that trip spawned? First of all, I agreed with Robert Mondavi that we would work on creating this place as a common ground. My personal intent along with that, the primary reason I came here was I wanted to grow a vineyard and make wine. What I really wanted to do at that time was create, in quotes, a first growth of California, a wine that someday hopefully could be recognized among the fine wines of the world. So what I had learned on this trip and a little bit of reading and things that I'd done along the way, if you want to produce a wine that's really, really a fine wine, it needs to come from a place. So the most important thing is to find really, really the best land. And so that's the foundation to try to build a wine growing estate and not own the land was not something I was interested in. This first 40 years of the 200 year plan was really about trying to identify and capture some of the very best land in America, which I feel is Napa Valley is. They produce higher quality wine for the longest period of time of red wine, Cabernet based wine than any place in America. And so I wanted to be here and I wanted to try to figure out how to capture this land in a way that we could create something beyond what had done up until now. So that was the dream, a bit presumptuous, but that was the idea. What were your first steps? First step was to start to learn about the wine business when I was looking for land. So we started a winery by buying fruit from different growers to get to understand the land. And over the next five years, did this research, started making wine, learned about the wine business, everything from growing grapes to making wine to understanding how the distribution network works in the wine business. And this winery had turned into a warehouse, so acquired the property, converted it into a winery where we could learn. And so had that property for about 13 years. We grew up from about 450 cases to about 45,000 cases made every mistake known to man, <laughs> but uh, we learned a lot. We bought fruit from over 60 different growers, probably closer to 80 different growers over that period of time. And so we really got to understand the, the lands of the Napa Valleys. What about the land in the western hills of Oakville drew you to it? The best wine of the Napa Valley was on the west side of the valley, what they call the bench lands, Oakville, Rutherford a bit. So I wanted to be as close to there, but the most valuable vineyards in the world were always in the hills, especially where they've done the most amount of research over the long longest period of time, well over a thousand years, is in Burgundy. And you'll find the Grand Cru's, the finest vineyards, are on the slopes, not down on the floor of the valley or at the top of the hill, but what I think of as a tenderloin. So that was the kind of land I wanted to own. Land like that would have been on the western hills, but they were all in forests and woodlands. So I was able to acquire a piece of land, the first 40 acres, and from there it began to grow. And at the time that you acquired that land, you had a hunch, but you didn't really know that it was going to be able to produce so I the kind of wine you wanted. No, we didn't. So tried to hire the people that knew more about these things and certainly more than I did at that time. So we acquired that land, cleared the land, brought in the roads, brought in the infrastructure, planted the vineyards, uh, and began making wine. That was in 1984. So here we are 35 years later or so. Uh, that's Harlan Estate, and we've, 
we have a good start. Uh, the challenge now is working, uh, uh, bringing the next generation along. So we've been working on that now for about uh, really 20 years with, with our own family, about 12 years. At what point in that process did you realize that you really did have something special and unique, a land that expressed a very unique character. From the time we acquired the land, planted the vineyard, until we sold our first bottle of wine was 12 years. You don't really get a crop for the first two or three years, but starting in 1987, we made our first wine. By the time we got to 90, the fourth vintage, we could see that the wines were really coming along. By 91, they had made another jump. By 94, we were convinced not only could we make good wine, but we had two or three vintages backing it up. By 1996 is when we first came to the market. So you got to a place where you felt like this risk may have paid off. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's after 12 years of money going in without a nickel of revenue. But then after that, it took another eight years before it started to be profitable. But it's really about the second generation. And in a way, Bond began even before Harlan Estate because... That project evolved out of your experience working with different vintners for so many years in your yes. first project. When we sold the old property, it started out at Sunny St. Lena Winery. When we sold it, of all those vineyards that we brought fruit from, there was one or two that were head and shoulders above all the others. And so we kept those two vineyards, and that was the beginning of Bond. Those vineyards deserved to have their own label. So that was the beginning of Bond. Then we slowly grew bond over the next decade from two properties to five. And so out of about 100 different vineyards that we bought fruit from and made wine, uh, we were able to capture five, about one in 20. And then Promontory also began early in your wine career too, in a way, because although it took decades before it was realized as a project, you had discovered the land about the same time that you acquired this property in Meadowood. This property in Meadowood was 79 and 80. The first time I walked onto the property, which would become Promontory, was in 1984. I was hiking in the hills, in the western hills of Oakville, assembling land that would be Harlan Estate. But this property wasn't adjacent to that land, uh, and it was much larger, and we weren't even sure at that time if the land in the Western Hills were going to be as good as we hoped they could be. So over the years, I kept my eye on that property. It took us 24 years before we were able to acquire it and before we had really built a team that had the capability of understanding it and before we had produced wine at the quality that we hoped to and even maybe beyond. We were very fortunate at the time of the depth of reception, really, that the property became available, and that was mm -hmm. the beginning of Promontory. It was also the beginning of the next generation. Mm -hmm. So it's really about the next generation taking on the responsibility of Promontory and in their own way, taking it to what they're working on now to the potential of Promontory. Of our 200-year plan we put together in 1980, we're now about 40 years into it. And soon it's going to be their turn. You've been involved in so many other businesses. And I know you were speaking with Robert about cars. And the car world is one where new models come out every year. It's about speed of innovation. With wine, it's such a different... You know, you said it changed your perspective on time, but... I would say that the change in time perspective happened for me very quickly. Up until the time I was 40, everything was working toward that point of disequilibrium, of not knowing what's going to happen in the next fraction of a second. That's where it's very, very exciting to live. To live in that zone, it seems like you need to continue to take pretty big risks to keep you in that zone of just living in the moment. So from the time I was 17 until I was 40, I had lived in that world. By the time I was 40 and went on this trip to see properties that had been in these families' hands for sometime as many as 12 and 14 generations, it just gave you a whole different perspective. The cars do come out every year with a new model, but with working with nature, nature delivers you a new hand every year, so we do our best to express the character, not only of the place from where the wine comes from, but the time that growing season. Certainly the difference between any automotive manufacturer and what you do in your wine businesses, Bill, is that no automotive manufacturer has a 200-year plan. <laughs> and uh, I think your vision is clearly one that's strategic, not just for the near term, but for the long term. 
But interesting thing, you're a big thinker, you're a long range thinker, but you're also a detail man. And those are interesting characteristics to share in the same mind. Most people don't have that ability. And I look at, for instance, even the labels of your various wines, the Harlan Estate, Promontory Bond. These are amazing things. You're aesthetically driven on every level. Someone say, well, what is the vision? What is it all about? And what are you trying to do? And so work on giving answers to that, which this idea of creating a first growth has evolved into creating a domain of producing wines at the very highest level from a few different properties. And I would say the things that they have in common more have to do with why. The reason why for us is really to, I think over time we can delight people. If we can, with a little more depth, we can begin to help enrich their lives, maybe indirectly. And if we can do that at a high enough level to inspire them to maybe go beyond. What I think of as elevating the spirit, and we talked about these cars. Aesthetically, if you have a car that's beautiful, it, it makes you feel good, even when you're not in it. And once you're in a car that you've become at one with it, you just feel great there. So both of them are about elevating the spirit. You know, you think about throughout history, what has elevated the spirit more than anything else? And it really gets down to art. And so when you think of these fantastic cars you were talking about with Bruce, and talking about the Peterson Museum, the automobile is going to be recognized as a work of art, these great automobiles. I think someday wine will be recognized in the realm of art. So if we can be working toward producing something at that level that can have that kind of impact on how people cognitively think about things, but also aesthetically, the emotional connection is really about why we're in this business and how those two relate, I feel. Bill and Brett, this was a very rare insight and kind of a special quiet moment to get to really understand the depth behind the wines. Certainly the wines that you produce are remarkable, but I think more remarkable still is the vision behind them and the fact that this vision is certain to endure for not just a century, but centuries and more. Thanks for giving us that insight. Well, thank you, Robert. Thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure to be at the table with you again. (laughs) Well, cheers. Thanks to Bill Harlan, Bruce Meyer, and Brett Anderson for joining us on Cars That Matter. And thank you to the Harlan family and the Napa Valley Reserve for hosting us. We'll see you next time to continue talking about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross. Produced by Chris Porter. Sound engineering by Bill Curtis. Recording and mastering by Michael Kennedy. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Recorded at the Napa Valley Reserve. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Our guests today were Bill Harlan, Bruce Meyer, and Brett Anderson. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.